0: John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. You'll see that in the bulletin. Uh, I will read the passage, and then we will pray and begin. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, "'Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness.'" If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on My own authority. But the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would grant us to receive the very words that You have given Jesus to speak to us. We pray that You would grant us to receive these words in faith, to embrace them, to love them and delight in them. And we pray that You would strengthen our faith and even grant faith to those who don't have it. Speak powerfully, we pray through me, in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't believe that. Depending on the circumstances and your tone of voice, those words might mean a lot of different things. Maybe Joel Embiid has just drained a game-winning three-pointer over two guys who are trying to block him. I can't believe that. Maybe a ref just made a bad call that lost your team the game. I can't believe that. Those words might express awe or wonder. They also might express disappointment or even disgust. Maybe someone let you down or betrayed you. You were leaning on them for support and instead you got stabbed. I can't believe that. Doubt, skepticism, a refusal to grant that something is true because the evidence doesn't persuade you. But what about when the stakes are even higher, higher than a game or an everyday relationship, higher than a simple matter of fact or opinion? What do you believe about what matters most? Do you believe in the Bible and the God who speaks there? Do you believe in the Son He sent to save us? Over the past three centuries, in Europe and America and even many other parts of the world, the default settings of belief have switched, they've reversed. Some type of belief in the Christian God used to be widely assumed, it used to be the default factory setting. The only atheists were a handful of wild radicals, they were way outside the mainstream, but now Over 300 years, those switches have gradually flipped positions. Now, unbelief is expected. It's those who believe who are seen as strange. Unbelief is normal. Faith is weird. Default unbelief seems to undermine Christ's credibility. If Jesus is the real deal, then why doesn't everybody believe in Him? If He really is the Son of God, then why doesn't He just show Himself to everybody and make everybody believe? Is other people's unbelief a good reason for you not to believe? We're not the first generation to wrestle with these questions. They've been with us since the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, and they run through all four Gospels. This morning, as we've just read, we're studying a passage from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. At the very beginning of this Gospel, the author, the Apostle John, tells us that many, even most, people rejected Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 say, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. Our passage in the main is about unbelief. It's about why people reject Jesus and what we should make of that rejection. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn to that chapter, uh, John chapter 12. Our passage comes at the close of Jesus' public ministry. The first 12 verses of John, uh, 12 verses the first 12 chapters of John's gospel tell us how Jesus traveled around teaching and healing he was working miracles and proclaiming the gospel after this in John 13 to 17 Jesus privately prepares his disciples for his death and resurrection in a long conversation with them in the upper room And then in chapters 18 to 21, John narrates Jesus' trial, His condemnation, His crucifixion, and His resurrection, and His commissioning of His disciples to go and preach the gospel. So our 14 verses here at the end of chapter 12 are the hinge of the whole gospel. They're the turning point from public to private, back to public again, from open teaching to then being condemned and crucified. And so Jesus is looking back over the course of His ministry, and He's summing up his message. And also, the Apostle John is summarizing how have people responded to him and why. These are Jesus' final public words in the back half of our passage. So, verses 37 to 43 explain why people responded to Jesus the way they did. And verses 44 to 50 give us Jesus' own summary and review of the main message he came to to share. These verses carry out a diagnosis of unbelief. They describe its conditions and causes and show us its cure. We're going to walk through this diagnosis of unbelief in five points. Point number one, the unreason of unbelief. The unreason of unbelief. We see this in verse 37. Look again at that verse. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. These signs are the miracles that Jesus performed throughout the gospel. So in chapter 2, He turned water into wine to rescue a wedding. In chapter 4, He healed someone who was deathly ill simply by speaking a word. In chapter 5, as we're going to consider tonight... He healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. In chapter 6, He multiplied five barley loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. In chapter 9, He healed a man who had been born blind. And in chapter 11, most decisively, most impressively, He called into the grave of His friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days simply by speaking the words, Lazarus, come out, he reached into death, and he pulled his friend back out. John calls these acts signs because they're pointers, like road signs telling you where to look and where to go. We're meant not just to look at these signs, but to look along them at what they point to. And what do they point to? They point us to the conclusion and confession that Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised Redeemer. They point us to the conclusion and confession that, as we've confessed together uh, in the Chalcedonian definition, they point to the confession that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but God's eternal Son, one with and united to the Father, and also united to us in our humanity. Only the Creator of all things can command created realities like water to become wine. Only the Creator of all things can can effortlessly heal creation's maladies like illnesses and diseases, blindness. The lesson we're meant to draw from all these signs and the power Jesus reveals in them is that only the one who has life in himself as God can restore life and give life where that life has been lost or ruined. In other words, these signs are meant to provoke faith in Jesus, but the signs themselves didn't guarantee faith. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Seeing is not always believing. You can't use as an excuse for unbelief in Jesus. Well, if I had been there and seen it, I would have believed. Many people who saw didn't believe. These days... It is often those who do not believe who claim the intellectual high ground. Modern atheists and others who reject Christianity often say things like this, I have a scientific worldview. I only believe what I can prove. I base my beliefs on evidence, not myth or speculation or tradition. It's you believers who take a blind leap into the dark against the evidence. But this verse teaches that it is not the eyes of believers that are blind, but the eyes of unbelievers. Jesus' actions piled up a heaping mound of what should have been convincing evidence. The problem wasn't the evidence, but the jury. Again, unbelievers today claim the high ground of intellectual rigor, yet it is not faith that is unreasonable, but unbelief. Does this universe explain itself? How it got here? How it got to be the way it is? Why there is something rather than nothing? Where does our innate sense of right and wrong come from if we're all just miscellaneously arranged cosmic dust? How do you explain the historical phenomenon of the birth and spread of the Christian church apart from the bodily resurrection of Christ? How do you explain the kinds of things Jesus said about Himself if they're not true? Are these the words of a man who was so delusional that he thought he was God? If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're glad you're here. You're welcome at any of Christ Church Westchester's services, Pastor Raymond, or I would be delighted to talk to you about these things after the service. I've got a simple question for you. Why don't you believe in Jesus? My guess is that the longer you think about that question, the less your answer will be a matter of the mind, and the more it will be a matter of the heart. Think about your relationship to Jesus and Christianity, whatever that is, if you're not a believer. If someone answered every single question you have about the faith, if they could provide a convincing answer to every single objection you have to becoming a Christian, would you believe them? If not, why not? What would come between you and following Jesus? Then. In the 17th century, speaking of Christianity, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. Point two the prophecy of unbelief. The prophecy of unbelief. We see God actually predicting this unbelief through the prophet Isaiah in verses 38 to 41. Look at at, at those verses with me. Verses 38 to 41, I'll start reading in verse 37. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. These are hard verses. Not so much hard to understand as hard to accept. As Mark Twain famously quipped, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. Verse 38 says that people did not believe in Jesus in order that prophecies of Scripture would be fulfilled. And then John quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter, three, uh, chapter 53 Verse 1, that chapter famously predicts the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of the suffering servant, who is Jesus, the Messiah. But the chapter begins by lamenting unbelief. It begins by lamenting that so few people have received the report about what the servant has done. "'To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?' All of Jesus' signs revealed His divine power in plain sight of all for anybody to see. But people's eyes were blinded so that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. Again, verse 39 tells us this is why they could not believe. John is presupposing here. He's assuming what Scripture elsewhere teaches that in our fallen state, we all, by nature, are unable to believe. And in the case of the majority of people who encountered Jesus in His earthly ministry, God sovereignly ordained not to remedy that inability. God determined not to lift the blindness. These folks had only themselves to blame for their unbelief, but... It is only God who could have healed them, as verse 40 says. In verse 40, John cites Isaiah 6 verse 10, which we read earlier. It comes from Isaiah's prophetic commissioning when he saw God Himself, and God Himself commissioned Isaiah to go and preach to His people. But as verse 6 of that chapter says, when Isaiah fulfilled this prophetic commission, the people were not going to listen to Him. They weren't going to hear or see. And John is telling us that Isaiah's own work was a foreshadowing, a prophecy of how people would reject Christ. God is our sovereign creator and ruler and Lord. When He punishes people by leaving them in their sins and by refusing to lift the veil of unbelief, He is not being unfair, but exactingly fair. He is not giving people what they don't deserve but is leaving them to receive precisely what they do deserve. What do you deserve? In America, we're so used to thinking of ourselves as deserving, meriting, working hard to achieve and getting what is due to us. But before God, what do you deserve? We've all rebelled against God. We've all rejected God. All of us have willfully shut our eyes and blinded ourselves to His truth and His claims on us. What we do deserve for this rejection of God is to be rejected by Him. These verses are telling us that in advance, God freely determined to reject those who in turn would reject His Son. Is the fact that some other people don't believe A good reason for you not to believe? No. Because even there, unbelief is ordained by God. God is sovereign even over the rejection of His Son. God is sovereign even over unbelief. None of this escaped His notice and none of this foiled His plan. Instead, His own people's rejection of His Son contributed to fulfilling His plan. This is some of the hardest news in the Bible, Our rejection of God is so total that all we deserve from Him is to be rejected in return. But you have to hear the hard news before you'll listen to the good news. You have to hear the hard news of the diagnosis before you'll receive the good news of a cure. You have to hear the hard news of the problem before you will seek the good news of a solution. The better you know your own spiritual bankruptcy, the more you'll cherish the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look again at verse 40, "...lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them." If you believe in Jesus, this is what God has done for you. He has healed you of unbelief. He has healed you of willful blindness against His truth. He has healed you of a hardness of heart that would have kept Him out. He has healed you in a deeper and more profound and more lasting way than what any human doctor could ever dream of accomplishing. In verse 41, John tells us, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So, when we read of Isaiah's vision of God's throne room earlier in the service in Isaiah chapter 6, who did Isaiah see? John tells us he saw God the Son. Now, that was not because the Son was somehow visible when the Father was invisible. It was not because the Son is somehow more like us, even apart from His humanity, than the Father is. Instead, John is simply saying that the Son is God. When Isaiah saw God, he saw the Son. And so Isaiah could speak truly about Jesus in advance because he truly saw Jesus beforehand. Jesus is the sum of Isaiah's preaching. He saw Him and spoke of Him. Jesus commissioned Isaiah to preach to His people and prophesied His own rejection in advance. Point three, the motives for unbelief, the motives for unbelief. John exposes these motives in verses 42 and 43. What reasons do people often give for not believing in Jesus? Maybe not enough evidence. Can't trust the sources. The gospels are written later. Christians' lives contradict their beliefs. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Or religion does more harm than good. It just causes violence and oppresses people. But what motivates unbelief? What motivates unbelief is often very different from a reason someone would consciously give for their unbelief. Our passage doesn't give an exhaustive list of what motivates unbelief, but it does uncover some motives for unbelief that might be more common than people would like to admit. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man. More than the glory that comes from God. Now, right off the bat, you might be wondering wait a minute. You said these were motives for unbelief, but verse 42 says many believed. What's the deal? The deal is that all true faith proves itself by open confession. That's one of the reasons that as part of this service together, we all together have read scripture aloud to declare its verdict on us because of our sinfulness. We all together have confessed key, core truths of the faith out loud, owning that this is what I believe. This is what we believe. True faith shows itself in open confession. There are no secret Christians. And there is a kind of faith that testing will show is no faith at all. If your faith doesn't lead you to own Christ publicly, it's not real faith. If your faith doesn't lead you to obey and embrace and hold fast to Christ's own words, it's not faith. If your faith doesn't lead you to submit your life to Christ's lordship, then whatever you call it, it's not faith. Nominal Christianity is Christianity in name only. Only wearing the label of Christian and not living like it. And nominal Christianity was not invented in the Bible belt. It shows up here in the pages of Scripture. John means for us to understand that in the end, nominal faith is no faith at all. So, what motivated these apparent believers not to openly confess Christ, therefore, not to truly follow him in the end? Verse 42. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose face, lose friends, lose standing in the community, lose connections in their lives. They didn't want to lose their reputation or maybe even lose their jobs. For all of us, confessing Christ comes with costs sometimes those costs are steep and sharp. Like someone who was baptized into membership in our church a few years ago, whose Hindu family effectively disowned her for coming to Christ. These apparent believers in verse 42 didn't want to pay those costs. Notice that verse 42 says, these were many of the authorities. These were people with people with power and prestige and standing in the community. The more you have in this world, the more you stand to lose by becoming a Christian. As John Calvin said on this verse, earthly honors may be called golden shackles, binding a man so that he cannot freely do his duty. And the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said on this verse, See the power of the Word in the convictions that many of them were under. See the power of the world in the smothering of these convictions. But verse uh, verse 43 takes us even deeper. It takes us beneath the surface of their actions, shows us the reason. Why did they fear rejection? Is that inevitable? Is it just part of being human? Why? Did they fear this rejection? Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is a contest of loves, and the wrong love wins. They loved the glory that comes from man, the praise, the honor, the recognition, the admiration, the affirmation. Affirmation is everything in our politics and society today. Affirmation. It's not enough for you to tolerate someone's self-chosen identity or their sexual self-expression. You must affirm and celebrate it. And the costs of refusing that affirmation can be just as steep as the cost that these Jewish leaders didn't want to pay for confessing Christ. Loving people's approval can and will keep you from loving Christ. As Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, and people's approval can be a master. As Paul confessed in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In order to submit to Christ, you have to be liberated from slavery to people's approval. You have to discern, diagnose, repent of, and resist the fear of man. But refusing to be a slave to people's praise doesn't lead to just a kind of stoic resignation to a joyless and obscure existence. You're playing a bigger game, a longer game, and a game with an infinitely bigger prize than the praise of people. What is that prize? Verse 43, the glory... That comes from God. You all are well taught by your pastor, Raymond. You know that the goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. You know that Scripture teaches that's our highest end. We exist to glorify Him. So what on earth is Scripture doing, saying there's glory that comes from Him to us? Both those things are true. We exist to glorify Him. We exist to praise Him. Our hearts are delighted and satisfied in declaring His matchless worth, and He condescends to satisfy our hearts with His own open declaration of affection and approval. On the last day, God will openly declare His joyful approval and delighted affirmation of all who have persevered in trusting and confessing Christ. No one whom I have ever met or read has captured this reality outside of the scriptural authors as well as C.S. Lewis. The quote I'm about to share is long, but it will be worth it. It's from his address, The Weight of Glory. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits, and also the healing of that old ache." Point number four, the cure for unbelief, the cure for unbelief. Look at verses 44 to 46, "'And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. When Jesus says that the one who believes in Him believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me, He's not contradicting Himself. Instead, He's saying that, By believing in Him, we're also believing in His Father. He reveals the Father, shows us the Father, brings us to the Father. Our faith doesn't stop with Him. Instead, faith rests on Jesus and reconciles you to the Father. The faith that depends on Jesus delivers you into the arms of the Father. But Jesus is saying even more than that. Verse 45, Whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. How can that be? Because, as we've confessed earlier, the Son and the Father, together with the Spirit, are one God. Consider these other passages from John's Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. If you want a whole lot more, and I mean a whole lot more, on John's teaching on the Trinity, come back at 5 p.m. tonight for a lecture on that subject. That's at 5 p.m. right here. But for now, look at verse 46. I've got to save something for tonight. Look at verse 46. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. May not remain in darkness. Meaning, apart from Jesus, that's where we all are. Apart from Jesus, we're all lost in the darkness of sin and self-deception. Apart from Jesus, we're all lost in the darkness we've brought on ourselves by shutting out God and refusing to submit to Him. Darkness is where we are and what we are. But Jesus came to deliver us from all of it forever. What we deserve is for God to reject us like we've rejected Him. But God did just the opposite. Instead of rejecting us, He sent His Son to rescue and redeem us. In the greatest imaginable act of love, Jesus gave His life on the cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of everyone who would ever turn and trust in Him. And in the greatest imaginable display of divine power, He rose from the dead to rescue us and release us from death's grip and the reach of all manner of darkness forever. Now He calls all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him. If you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, believe in Him today. Call on Him today to save you. Give up trying to be your own Savior and Lord and rest on Him completely to reconcile you to God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that faith is hard. Circumstances like pandemics only make it harder. All sorts of headwinds Blow against following Christ. All sorts of hurdles can trip up your faith and cause you to stumble, to fall into doubt or discouragement or even despair. So what should you do when your faith is stumbling and struggling? Here is one indispensable, non-negotiable means for sustaining your faith. Commit to a local church and stay committed. Join a faithful gospel preaching church and throw your life into it. Attend even when you don't feel like it. Serve others when it feels like you have nothing to give. Keep showing up even when it feels like only the bare force of habit will get you there. The local church is a faith workshop, a faith factory, a center for faith repair. When I graduated from college, my dad bought me a nice leather briefcase. After many years of heavy use, it began to fall apart. The shoulder strap started to fray and come undone. The main handle got so worn thin that I was keeping it together with electrical tape. Eventually, my wife just said to me, what are you doing? Get it repaired. (laughs) So I took it to a guy named Peterbug. Peterbug has a leather repair shop a little workshop at 13th and E, Southeast, about a mile from my house in D.C. Peter Bug glued up the shoulder strap, and he made a whole new handle out of a leather scrap and, you know, attached it and worked it out, and it looks good as new. All for 35 bucks. That briefcase is sitting back in Raymond's office right now. Brothers and sisters, members of Christ Church Westchester, When your faith is fraying, don't throw it away. Instead, bring it in right here to get it repaired, to get it worked on and tuned up and conditioned so that it goes back out with you. What's the cure for unbelief? It's Christ Himself. It's seeing Him as He is. It's meeting Him face to face in the pages of His Word, and in seeing Him, seeing the Father." Point five, our final point, the consequences of unbelief, the consequences of unbelief. We've considered the unreason of unbelief, the prophecy of unbelief, the motives for unbelief, the cure for unbelief, now the consequences of unbelief. Jesus Himself announces these consequences in verses 47 to 50. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In verse 47, Jesus is not denying that He will finally judge the world. Instead, He's simply distinguishing between the purpose of His first coming and the purpose of His second coming. The first time He came to save, He came to rescue and redeem. But in verse 47, He leaves a gap in the story, a gap that He fills in elsewhere in John's gospel. So, for instance, in a passage that we hope to consider tonight, John 5, 22, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son." In other words, Jesus will judge all people, but not yet. In verse 48, Jesus publishes in advance the standard, the criterion, by which those who reject Him will be judged on the last day. It's the word that He has spoken. If you reject Jesus' teaching, that very Word will judge you on the day of final judgment. Jesus' Word is the decisive criterion of your eternal destiny. Where does this Word come from? Verse 49 tells us, "'For I have not spoken on My own authority, but the Father who sent Me has Himself given Me a commandment, what to say and what to speak.' Here, Jesus is echoing very clearly God's promise through Moses, given in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, that sometime after Moses was dead and gone, God would raise up another prophet like him. Here is Deuteronomy 18, 18. Listen for the way Jesus echoes this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. In other words, by becoming incarnate and living a truly human life there in first century Judea, Jesus has been raised up from among his brothers, the people of Israel. And he received this commandment from the Father. Insofar as he is a human being living a genuinely human life, he receives God's commands and faithfully transmits those commands to us. He is much more than a human prophet but not less. And what is this word He receives? Verse 50 tells us, I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In other words, Jesus doesn't just teach us God's commandments. He obeys and fulfills and enacts those commandments. And He received a special commandment from the Father. He received a commandment that no one else ever has received and no one else ever could fulfill. Just a couple chapters earlier, we learn what this commandment is. John 10, verses 17 to 18. "'For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge.'" I have received from my Father." The command Jesus is talking about is ultimately the command that came to Him, to go to the cross and lay down His life and then take it up again for us three days later. I've got four children. The oldest is 11, the youngest is 2, one of the constant challenges of parenting is teaching children of a variety of ages and temperaments that actions have consequences. If you fight against getting dressed in the morning and you turn getting dressed from a simple two-minute chore into an intricate 45-minute battle, you will be late for school. If you insult and then hit your sibling, they will retaliate. That retaliation may be physical. That doesn't justify their retaliation, but that consequence is pretty regularly going to follow that cause. Actions have consequences. So what are the consequences of unbelief? If you refuse Jesus' word, you reject the only word that can save, and it becomes a word of judgment. So receive Christ's words as if your life eternally depends on it, because it does. What happens in a society when unbelief becomes the new normal? What are the broader consequences when unbelief is the default option? Consider how the philosopher John Gray, who is himself an atheist, opens his book, Seven Types of Atheism. Contemporary atheism is a flight from a godless world. Life without any power that can secure order or some kind of ultimate justice is a frightening and, for many, an intolerable prospect. In the absence of such a power, human events could be finally chaotic, and no story could be told that satisfied the need for meaning. Struggling to escape this vision, atheists have looked for surrogates of the God they have cast aside. The progress of humanity has replaced belief in divine providence. But this faith in humanity makes sense only if it continues ways of thinking that have been inherited from monotheism. The idea that the human species realizes common goals throughout history is a secular avatar of a religious idea of redemption. cast away belief in God, and God's substitutes will come flooding in. Or as he puts it at the very end of the book, contemporary atheism is a continuation of monotheism by other means. If you don't believe in God, what God's substitutes are there in your life? If you don't believe in Christ... Do you have faith in humanity? How is that faith holding up? So what are the conditions of unbelief? Unbelief is an unreasoning rejection of the evidence that Christ has given us. And unbelief results in being rejected by God forever. What are the causes of unbelief? One is being captive to human approval and rejection. What's the cure of unbelief? It's coming face-to-face with Christ Himself, who came to deliver us from sin, death, and darkness. As He says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would enable us all not to walk in darkness, but to trust in Christ and have the light of life. Father, we pray for any who do not yet have that light in them by faith that You'd break in on them by Your Holy Spirit and cause that light to shine in their hearts to show them Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those whose faith is flickering, who are feeling overwhelmed by darkness. We pray that You would sustain and strengthen them by Christ Himself, showing them more of Him. And grant us all to hold fast this light and to hold it forth to others.